Welcome to The O Podcast, an audio companion to Tufts' oldest publication, The Observer Magazine. This podcast is released alongside each print issue of The Observer. Here, we aim to delve deeper into the topics explored in the articles, consider new perspectives, and uplift voices from the print issue and beyond. In the first segment of this episode, our Voices team had a conversation with Alice Hickson about her original poem, The Summer After, and spoke to the designer for her piece, Julia Steiner. In the wake of the Atlanta mass shootings, Saba Lokwandala and Sylvia Wang wrote a piece for the print issue on the surge in anti-Asian hate crimes this year. We spoke with Erin Pereno, the director of the Asian American Center, about anti-racism in our institution and about community resources in the aftermath of the shooting. The print issue also featured a piece by Emily Thompson on the student-written jukebox musical, Is There Anybody Out There? The final segment features conversations with playwright and lead actor Athena Nair and Mona Tavangar, the music director of the show. The O Podcast presents Body and Sex. I'm Suhasini. I'm Alexis. And I'm Hannah. And for this episode of the Companion Podcast, Alexis and I interviewed Alice on her poem, The Summer After. We asked Alice about where she finds inspiration, her writing process, and how the visual art in The Observer influenced this poem. This is an excerpt from the beginning. It's called The Summer After. We live in the space between dock and doorways. The thick heat of this lakeside town paints sticky kisses across our freckled cheeks. Longing like the tides rising and falling into chapped lips, your smile appears only through thickets of cascading. So, firstly, we wanted to ask you what inspired you to write this poem. Yeah, so I'm actually in a poetry class right now at Tufts called Forms of Poetry. And we, every week we have to write a poem. And sometimes there's prompts for them. And I think the prompt for this particular poem was playing around with like white space and enjambment like where the poem end and like where the lines end sorry and where there's punctuation where there's not and so I wrote this poem to follow that prompt and it was the idea came to me just because I was thinking about it was a really cold day in like March or something and I was thinking about summer (laughs) and how nice that would be so that's kind of just loosely what inspired me. So your piece incorporates some visual media as well. How do you think these two forms of art interact with each other? The photos um, interact with the piece because I actually took one of the photos, the one of the sofa bed kind of looking over onto the lake. And I thought it would go well with the piece because that's kind of like the contrast of the bed and like inside and... And then the outside where you can see the lake and the visual of summer kind of. And this poem kind of alludes to like a secret romance in a way. And so having like what's what's on the inside, you don't see from the outside. But like, I don't know if I'm explaining this super well, but um, that's kind of like how they interact in my mind. And also because the location where I took that photo, it's in um, New Hampshire. And that was like where I was setting the poem in my mind. So what can you tell us about your writing process or how many drafts it took for you to feel like the poem was as finalized as it was going to get? Yeah, so I actually still kind of, even though the the poem is published, I would still, there are still some things that I would want to change like upon reading it when it was in the magazine. My writing process is usually I I have an idea and then I kind of write tidbits down. It's usually not fully fleshed out or like full forms. It's usually just like small stanzas with ideas. 
and then I try to like work them together and then I, I do a lot of with poems I do a lot of playing around with like trying to create multiple meanings with the way that the lines are broken up and so it, it's not as much in this poem but I definitely have other poems that are much more like I don't know and like this isn't my favorite poem personally of mine but it went with the theme for the lit issue but I like other poems that kind of play more around with that and so after I do the, like an initial draft I will edit it, usually send it to like one of my friends or one of my, like Paola, the other poker editor, and we kind of work on stuff together. And then even after that, I feel like I'm never fully, I don't think a poem, I mean, obviously a poem is done at a certain point, but I don't think it ever really is. Like it's a moving piece. So there are still things I would change. We actually critiqued it in my poetry class the day that the magazine came out. So I was like, okay. <laughs> so there are some things that I would still change. For instance, like the line I say, we gorge on heaps of vanilla ice cream dollop them over my stomach. I kind of put that in because to me, it was like I was attached to that line because it was like a specific memory. But when you're reading the poem, you don't necessarily get that from that. So you it kind of comes out of nowhere. And it just is like this visual that isn't super in line with the other very like natural imagery that's in it. It's very unnatural. It's bringing in this like vanilla ice cream that's never been mentioned before. So I think when when re-editing again, I would rework that or change that in some way. So yeah, kind of building on the concept of a poem as a moving piece, how has your relationship to this piece changed over time? as you were writing it, as you look back on it? Yeah, I think my relationship to it, I think when I first started writing it, it was much shorter and it kind of ended. I think some of the middle stanzas weren't there and it just was like the first two and then the last stanza. And so it was like this very brief, short um, concept and like idea that existed really only as like a memory in my mind. And then when I sent it to Paula, she was like, I really want more. Like I, I need more from this, this piece. Like I want more stanzas and I want to know more about the relationship between these people and like the place. And so when, when she said that, I really had to like go back and kind of dig more into my memory bank about this time in my life and not all of my pieces are like based off of my own experience. Oftentimes that they're not, but this one was. So I, I was really going like blast from the past, looking back and, and thinking about those things. And so I think it changed in that, like it became more developed and I became more invested, I guess, in like telling a story in a way that when it first, when I was first writing it, I didn't feel as much. Is there anything else you'd want Tufts Cinebody to know about your writing or just poetry and photography and how those, what inspires you? Yeah, I think that's like this, I, I don't think I really considered myself to be a poet necessarily, especially because it feels like you have to, if you're writing poetry, you kind of have to like assign some sort of label that you're a poet, but I think anyone can really write poetry and do these art forms like use visual media as a way to tell a story and I think that's one of the great things and you don't have to necessarily write in a certain style or a certain way to be a poet or write poetry and I think this is definitely something I think about in that you shouldn't like box yourself into like a way of writing or a way of, ex- of telling a story or expressing things when you can do so many things um, with poems, prose, art in general. And so, yeah, I, I think everyone should tr- give poetry a try if they can. Today, I interviewed Julia about her process of creating the layout and design that appear in the print version of The Observer. My name is Julia Steiner. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am a first-year student, class of 2024, and I design for The Observer. I saw your design for Alice's poem, and it was honestly so beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. But yeah, what was your thought process um, when putting those 
pieces together, all those pictures together and the layout and stuff. So basically, I definitely draw a lot of inspiration from both the art that is provided for, to me and also the, the writing itself. So honestly, designing feels much easier when you're given like beautiful work to work with, which I'm really grateful for. Uh, so like the photos on page 26 with the summer after, really gorgeous photos. And I had the idea to put two of them together and I kind of looked at like where the colors merged. So it kind of created the cohesive page. Yeah. Um, and then I just looking at what was provided, using the colors from the photos to create the text box and all of that kind of thing. But yeah, I really enjoy reading the, be the beautiful poetry and it kind of like gives you a sense of like what the piece uh, should look like visually. Um, and just like the, the mood of the piece definitely inspires like the design. Yeah, something I don't know much about design, but something I noticed when I was looking at it was this sort of contrast between this cotton candy-ish blue and pink against this almost silhouette looking black foreground of those trees. And then also that together with the picture of the room and the wall blending into the trees, which I thought was really, really cool. Can you talk to me about your thought process there? I went through a lot of experimentation. I was given a lot of photos that I could use for the page. So at first I had a ton of photos on the page. I had like five laid out. I experimented with where I wanted to position them. At first I didn't have them touching. I had white borders and that kind of thing. So it took a lot of playing around with what I had until I kind of started narrowing down what photos I wanted to use. And then once I kind of saw like the two photos I have on the page right now together, I kind of decided like they would look really good together. Um, and I wanted to kind of, I wanted the page to look very peaceful might be the right word. Um, especially because of a lot of the language in the poem and like the photography itself conveys a sense of peace. And I thought having kind of two float photos flow together would convey that feeling. And I wanted to use both photos. And I thought that I just noticed like the darkness at the top of the photo on the bottom and also the like the silhouette of the trees of the photo on top merged well together. So I was just like, oh, I'll just put them together. And it ended up looking really nice. And I'm happy with how it turned out. Yeah, no, it's really lovely. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Is there anything about um, the poem in particular that inspired your design? I definitely wanted to use the photo at the bottom with the bed and the window, especially because mm -hmm. in the last stanza of the poem, Alice used the word, it make, or she wrote, it makes us feel full again and now, the memories loosely stitched together like the pillow I loved, my body once knew every dip and soft fell. That was not a fantastic reading, but the use of the word pillow kind of obviously evoked the imagery of a pillow. And I was like, okay, there's this photo. I felt like it very strongly connected with the feeling of softness and light and nostalgia that was conveyed through the photo. Yeah. So that's I why I decided. Yeah, that. I think you can totally see that. Is there anything else that you want to share about your process or about anything that, you know, how it turned out? I would also like to emphasize again that it was a very enjoyable process and fun, especially because the materials I was given to work with were so fantastic. And so I'm very thankful to the editors who provided me with these things to work with. And also, Part of the design process as well was influenced by the inspiration that one of our creative directors sent to us, which I am thankful for as well. And just like looking at what other successful designers do is very helpful. March 16th, Atlanta, Georgia, a 21-year-old white man walked into three massage parlors across the city and opened fire. 
That day, he killed eight people. Sun Chung Park, Hyun Jung Grant, Sun Cha Kim, Yong E Yu, Xiao Jie Tan, Tao Yo Fong, Delaney Ashley Yan, and Paul Andre Michaels, six of whom were of Korean and Chinese descent. Yet this massacre was not classified as a hate crime. Mainstream media and law enforcement legitimized the killer. Headlines read, Atlanta shooting suspect told investigators that killings of Asian women weren't racially motivated, police say. And Jay Baker, the Atlanta police captain leading the press conference on the shooting, told the world that the suspect was, quote, fed up and at the end of his rope. And the day of the massacre was just, quote, a really bad day for him. In the face of rising violent hate crimes against Asians across the U.S., members young and old in the Asian community, including myself, fear for our own safety and that of our loved ones. Hearing this felt like a slap in the face. No, a shot to the heart. Asian lives should not be the cost of a really bad day. My name is Emma Downs. In this segment, we will be touching upon the history of Asian American racism, Tufts community reactions to Atlanta, and support for Asians here on campus. We'll be speaking to Erin Pereno, the director of the Asian American Center, about anti-racism in our institution and about community resources in the aftermath of the shooting. There is a long history of anti-Asian violence and hate in the United States, from the Chinese massacre in 1871 Los Angeles, to the frequent characterization of Asians as disease-ridden, to the segregation of Chinese immigrants into Chinatowns, the Page Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1885, to Japanese internment and Vincent Chin's murder in 1982. Since the start of the pandemic, the violence against Asian bodies has escalated. Spurred by Trump and the rhetoric of the Chinese virus, in 2020, hate crimes against Asian Americans increased 150%. The Asian community has had to be fearful for its safety, and members have had to continuously come together to process, mourn, and heal in the face of hatred. Here on Tufts campus, student groups have come together to respond to the tragic events of March 16th through organizing community healing and awareness building. For example, the next day, the Korean Students Association released a statement of solidarity and condemnation of Asian hate on their Instagram, writing, The fact is that Asian and Pacific Islander lives are being threatened at this very moment, and yesterday's terror further proves that these threats are not going away anytime soon. The Tufts Asian Students Coalition has spoken out against the injustice and in support of Asians as well, providing resources for supporting AAPI organizing and mutual aid efforts on their social media. Tufts has provided resources to all students, in person and remote, through the Asian American Center, or the AAC, at Tufts. We asked Aaron Pereno, the director, how he would describe the work of the center and how it has supported the Asian community after the events in Atlanta. Very broadly, the mission of the Asian American Center is to support the needs and wants of Asian and Asian American students in terms of what we've done since Atlanta is kind of providing that holistic support, just options for us to check in with students, but also more importantly for me is to have more of those behind the scenes conversations around what does it mean to support Asian Americans broadly from the university. So for me, as the director is trying to provide more of that sustainable support. So if and when something like this happens in the future, the university is better equipped to respond. And I think for Emily, who's, you know, our other staff member at the center, she's kind of more on on the ground in responding to the needs of the students. So we really have to be in sync and work together to ensure that we're getting the whole picture. Aaron and Emily work at the Asian American Center to provide long-term and short-term support for students. Their work is imperative, as the Asian community has a history of being ignored and their problems erased and denied at Tufts and nationwide. We're about one of 45 standalone Asian American centers nationally. So I think 
it does mean something that the university is dedicating a space and place for the needs of Asian and Asian American students. Um, but you know that does not come without its challenges, right? We are the largest student of color community on campus, and there are certain challenges when trying to coalesce a community and support a community that large. I do appreciate that President Monaco did send a statement and is, you know, really emphasizing like what are the sustainable action steps we can take as a community. But I think overall, what I've learned from this is that. The university has not really recognized the ways that the Asian American community has been racialized, right? And I think that's something that's not necessarily Tufts University specific, that's society. In the midst of the pandemic, anti-Black racism, anti-Asian racism, and more, many individuals and educators here at Tufts have become more aware of the hardship that their Asian students are facing. But not all know what to do right after the attacks in Atlanta. You know, I had a lot of staff and colleagues in my inbox asking, you know, how can we support, how can we support you? And as great and well-intentioned that is, oftentimes when things like this happened, we're asking folks who are at the center of that trauma to provide supports for themselves so that others can support them. A lot of educators, don't know how to support Asian Americans when things like this happen. Faculty members are not taught to be educators, right? They're taught to be experts in content, right? So I think because of that, there's a lot of things that go missing in terms of how to support students. Not only do educators need techniques in being emotionally present for students, they need anti-racist education. For both educators and students, taking ethnic studies courses, learning about the history and positionality of the people present in their classrooms, and sharing that knowledge is necessary to facilitate an inclusive, anti-racist classroom. Training is not enough, like bias response training or you know anti-racism training. It really is a shift in like your own ways of knowing. So I think in terms of all those educating pieces, It's kind of like Asian American history, politics. A lot of faculty members will be like, oh, yeah, you know, the Asian American student at Tufts is like representative of all Asian American students. And I'm like, well, that's not true. Like about 52% of Asian American students are in the community college system. And I don't know if that's something that's widely known because of the insidious nature of the model minority myth. I think we need to do as staff a better job of telling our story so it's seen by the students, because I don't know if that's always seen by the students. Students appreciate knowing their professors and leaders in the institution can open up to them about their experiences to create mutual understanding, trust, and personal connection. Aaron explained that creating change among the faculty and institution are necessary in order to support and fully include Asian students on campus. Everything that we do centers the Asian American students on campus. So it's not about necessarily what we think or um, how we want the community to be, is how are we advocating for how the students want the community to be. So given all of that, I think a good way to do it is kind of like working with the center, but then also working against the university, right? It's almost kind of paradoxical because in working against the university, I mean, there are structures that need to be changed. So there are things that we know now that are not serving our students. So how can we push against the university to change those things? Working with the center is almost be like, okay, this is what we need from you as a staff member to like apply pressure in a different way. And overall, I think it is to help the university grow to be a better place. Aaron wants to help students grow and find a home here at their own pace in whichever way students want to be involved, the AAC is there for them. Just because one doesn't get involved with the center in their first year, whether that's like you're a first year student or a transfer student, that doesn't mean that like opportunities at the center are gone for you. We understand that one's entry point to the Asian American communities can be complicated and difficult. In terms of like getting involved, find the way that feels right and authentic to you. So for a lot of students, that's through student organizations. The AAC is not the only way to be more involved in the Asian community at Tufts. I would say to really utilize the mentors in those student organizations as entry points to the Asian American community broadly and the center. 
because I think a lot of the work that we have done at the AAC would not have been possible without the work of some of the students who are really involved in these organizations. This includes organizations like the Tufts Asian Students Coalition, the South Asian Political Action Community, the Vietnamese Student Club, the Philippinex Student Union, Korean Students Association, the Chinese Students Association, Japanese Culture Club, and more. We asked Aaron about what other ways Tufts students can be engaged in Asian community organizing and empowerment. Broadly, a lot of these community organizations really provide a variety of services as well for connection. Just having conversations with people who work in those organizations. I think they're always looking for folks who really want to partner in the help. It is just simply going to an event and finding out like what issues are important to you. For me, what that's looked like was, you know, I, in addition to working education for a while, I worked in food service. So food justice is something that's important to me, right? Especially now during the pandemic, um, a lot of families, particularly low-income Asian American families, have been struggling. It's like, how are we getting them access to the things that they need? Um, whether or not that's, you know, actively participating and volunteering or donating if you have the economic privilege to do so. So I think it's just trying to find issues that you feel passionate about that can help motivate you to do this community work because the Asian American community is very diverse. All issues affect our community. So there are ways and different entry points to support each other and really support yourself because I think by helping others in your community, you really are also helping your own sense of self and connecting to um, something that's bigger than you. I think we show up for each other like this whenever something happens for our communities. And I think that's something that's important to elevate. We asked Aaron if there were mental health resources for Asian students and valuable people to connect to with on campus as well. Our liaison for CMHS, for Counseling and Mental Health Services, um, he's great. His name is Andrew Yun. I think there are a lot of other Asian American staff who um, are great folks to connect with. You know, I think of like Andrew Shiotani, who's director at the International Center, Shirley Mark, who's at Tisch College, and like Preetha Benjiri, who's their uh, Hindu chaplain. Those are all great folks to get connected with and get support from at the university for other like mental health like options and services to really explore culturally specific ones. You know, we've had former clinicians at Tufts who have practices that, you know, are still open to seeing Tufts students and they were our former liaisons as well. So I think that's something to, to definitely look into and to really continue to um, be authentic and um, open up about what does it mean to get support for mental wellness and mental health. In quote unquote normal times, um, it's like super easy to access myself and Emily like at the center because when we're there, our doors are literally always open. So whether or not like that's just coming in and like hanging out to talk randomly about things, you know, we totally welcome that. These conversations are continuously ongoing behind and beyond the doors of the AAC. Many Tufts students and alumni, including myself, have found ways to get involved with the Asian American and Pacific Islander Boston organizing community through organizations like the Asian American Women's Political Initiative, the Chinese Progressive Association, the Asian American Resource Workshop, Viet Aid, and the Asian Task Force Against Domestic Violence. These are fantastic organizing and community spaces. Remember, you are not alone. Always remember you have the center and allies throughout the university to turn to. My heart goes out to the families of victims of the Atlanta shootings and to everyone healing and trying to stay safe in our community. As always, Thank you for listening. This is our show. This is our space.
said Athena Nair about her play, Is Anybody Out There, in an interview with Observer writer Emily Thompson. The student-written jukebox musical seeks to build community and understanding by sharing the stories of people typically excluded from the stage, featuring an all-BIPOC cast and characters who both challenge and make us question racial stereotypes. The play follows a young South Asian woman named Nora and explores the many dimensions of BIPOC identity in America. I'm Dave Kikawa. I'm Jamie Guerra. And in this podcast episode, we'll be talking with playwright Athena Nair. How did this community feel different? Like this community of characters and casting and crew, like how did it feel different from other communities at Tufts that you've been part of, both in theater and out of theater? And like, did you have intention behind as like the leader of this, like in fostering what kind of community you wanted to create? Yeah, definitely. This was different creating art with other people of color. Like that was so dope. Like purposely creating a space where both in like the people who acted, but also the rehearsal staff, so the director, music director, stage manager, like we were collaborating together and telling stories that were important to us. Um, and I feel like later on we'll like get like really emotional like about it looking back, but it's so beautiful that like regardless students of color at Tufts came together, but like especially mm. during COVID. Like, a year in, like, people are exhausted and depressed, and, like, it's so hard to create art. Um, mm-hmm. And then doing that with, like, in a community with other people of color was really special. Also, um, I came, I was super intimidated by theater at Tufts. Um, I mean, it was a bunch of white kids, and they all just looked, like, they just were so posh, and they had their, <laughs> like, jargon, and I was like, I don't get any of this stuff. So, I, like, signed up for the E-list, but didn't really go to much, but I was lucky in that, like, my theater experience at Tufts before this were, like, low-key and, like, amazing. But, like, generally in terms of especially musical theater, like, felt super exclusionary. There was a history of, like, you know, my first semester, um, there was a show, Spelling Bee, or the, it has a longer name, but that's just what people call it. And there were at least two characters, like, meant for specifically BIPOC roles, and that cast ended up being all white. Um, and that audition, other BIPOC audition. So that was like my first big like, oh, this is Tusk Theater. And I doubt there's a history of that. So that was um, freshman year? Yeah, that was my like first couple weeks of school. Yeah. Um so I was like, okay, theater was my thing in high school, like maybe it's not my thing here. Did you have similar similar experiences with like um theater in high school in terms of not being taught for certain roles or <sighs> that was such a, like yeah. it was very white dominated? I mean eighth grade I remember like it was like not intentional, but it ha- ended up happening that like I was auditioning for Oliver, which is like the Oliver Twist musical. And looking back, like all of the poor people and like people on the streets were people of color, and all of like oh. Oliver and like the rich people were like white, and um and all the helpers were. So that was tricky, but I had <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of really tough experiences in high school around the intersectionality of being brown and kind of chunky, and I was like, people aren't going to think, like, sexy and sex appeal is a big thing in theater with so many roles, yeah. and I was like, I'm not going to yeah. be the ingenue, I'm not going to be. So that's why Roxy in Chicago was such such a big moment for me, because it was this new director that, like, somehow saw it in me and believed in me. I was like, oh my god, I have like power and I can be a leading woman. Um, so it's so important to me that like I there's some stuff about La La Land, which is actually I love the movie. Yeah, me too. But it's just it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's, really beautiful it's a work of art, it's beautiful, but I do shit on it because you know, it's so often people like people color the side characters and it's like, what if they have the star what if they're the star? What if they have their mm-hmm. moment and like all the background history, like you get all of it, mm-hmm. not just one aspect. Do of you it. think like the fact that you felt like you weren't you would never what's the word like you didn't feel like you were like good looking enough whatever to be in in theater that's why you chose to write I yes. realized I want to master my own destiny and I want to I want to make it for me is that yeah and I didn't think it would be real right I was just like okay this is kind of like my fantasy world where I get to be open about my sexuality in some ways because it's really based on me I get to write these stories I get to explore what like queer friendship means and then what queer relationship means and then what like all of this stuff and also what does that look like being South Asian and um and so it was like my fantasy world and then I was like maybe other people need this fantasy world too like to become a little bit real. Maybe you had a question about like whether there was like it was like Bollywood inspired right? Oh yeah yeah, yeah. so my question was like I mean it's something Kareem brought up in the article was like how it kind of had Bollywood type elements 
yeah. um, in the play. And I was wondering, like, as much as the play was catered to a BIPOC casting crew, it was also catered to a BIPOC audience. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, that was something that I, like, thought about during. I was like, oh, should I cater to white people make sure they understand and, like, mm-hmm. have less, you know, their, like, native languages in and whatever. And I was like, they'll figure it out from contact. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it wasn't really intentional, but very naturally, like, People make fun of Bollywood a lot for the dramatics, but Bollywood is fun, yeah. and Bollywood has drama for a reason. And yeah, it's fun. Like it's it's like I love Bollywood with so much of my heart. So I think it just naturally came into the way I told the story um, with the dramatics and with like the lead up and and the music and breaking into song and um, all of that. Mm. Yeah. So so I mean, you're obviously South Asian, so you were able to like craft you know, specific dialogue um, for the South Asian family, I guess, like, through some of your experiences. But what was it like building the Mexican family? Because even there, like, the... I don't know if I forgot what they called their parents, but it was, like, mommy and mommy. Yeah, mommy. very in tune with what Mexican culture, I would think, sounds like a family thing. So part of that was just, like, growing up around, like, Spanish-speaking families. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Kareem Kukjandani touched on this, like, it wasn't something, again, it came so naturally, but it, there is this history, especially in California, of, like, Mexican-American and generally, like, Latin-American families and, like, South Asian families, like, kind of coming together, whether in, like, marriage and, like, mingling that way or just, like, in community. And so that's what happened to me as a kid. Um, so part of it was just, like, sur- being surrounded by that. And also, So is that kind of why you chose... Mexican identity rather than like say yeah. Chinese or Japanese or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean not so intentionally, it, but yeah. But subconsciously for right. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because and the thing that I explained in that talk back is I mean Kareem put it so beautifully and like the, the why they're so connected, but there's a lot of things with, with language, with like kind of the tropes that can sometimes like translate a little bit in terms of like stoic immigrant father and like nurturing mm-hmm. over protective mother. Um, the language in some ways and like the way language is used in, in caregiving and things like that the food, mm-hmm. the dance and then also anti-blackness, the relation to whiteness and yeah. all of that skin color, yeah, things yeah, like the that colorism. I mean one thing I think you did really well which I like really don't, like the thing I was most impressed with was that, like I don't see in other forms of media at all is that like usually if there's like a BIPOC focused production it focuses on like one identity I'll have that just that family and like that that race yeah. but you managed to like both merge and juxtapose like both combine and compare these like two and four five six different identities at the same time and like that's really difficult to like first have that like cultural competency to like be able to do that and two to just like yeah like how yeah how do how like yeah how did you merge them so kind of like easily very yeah it was not easy but um it was not easy it took it took a lot a lot of research a lot of listening to people who are willing to talk to me and so some of it did did come naturally based on my own experiences but specifically like trans identity is something I've like had friends go through but like in just like not in a very accessible way to me and but part of it was research but part of it was like talking to people who some people like do not want to think about that do not want to divulge but um yeah, that's, that's partially why, I mean, also I'm a student and so overcommitted and I do many things, so that's why it took four years, but also, you know, I was carefully crafting yeah. and, like, making sure I was, I was, ter- there were so many moments I was like, I give up, I don't relate to these, like, I'm going to be offensive, it's going to be awful, <laughs> like, so many moments, even so, yeah. like, so close to the show, mm-hmm. I was like, it's going to be bad, people are going to hate it. Did you, like, consult with, oh, another question we had, like, did you consult with actors in, like, how... Of, yeah. of those yes. backgrounds, so like how this identity was portrayed. And like, did you match, did you, when you were casting, did you match the actor to the identity or did you match the identity to the actor? Like, what did, was the identity of the character already pre-existing and you said, I want an actor with this background or was it the reverse? Um, mostly, so for, for like the families, they were... Yeah, like beyond Nora and Bernardo for like the friends and like um, other well, people. Well, for, for Charlie and Tina, they like for Charlie needed to be trans, Tina needed to be like trans or non-binary. Before you cast it? Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Like the, the, the person themselves. The character. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Or, or, or. Oh, like in, in real life? Yeah. In real okay, life. okay, okay. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then Mike was the, really the only one that didn't have any specifications other than being a person of color. But it's so wild how the cast, like it just worked. Like it just, it really just like people fit in. Like casting wasn't super, super hard, honestly. 
in terms of deciding who to because people just like fit into their roles and audition for specific roles because we put it out there on the mm-hmm. application. Yeah, yeah. A lot. What would you say was the most fun character to develop? Because I think my favorite part about the play was how each character was so fleshed out and distinct in what aspects of like BIPOC identity yeah, yeah. they relayed. Um, like I love the mom character. Like I, I didn't resonate, but like she reminded yeah. me so much of like my nani and dadi, which means grandmother. Um, and then I also found um, Sid Sidan's character really interesting. Um, yeah, so he's a beautiful character. Yeah, and made me so. I wish my brother could watch it. Also, Tay just did an amazing. All that. No, actors I was thinking of the other Sid. Oh, but both characters. <laughs> his short. Yeah, yeah. Sure, also. I mean, that entire family, both families. Yeah, the families were really important to me. Mm-hmm. Asha's character, or Asha's the actor, Aisha. Yeah. It's funny how some of them make like <laughs> Gina, Tina, Gina played Tina. Anyway, um, Aisha, Mama's character, was like the most challenging and rewarding to flesh out mm-hmm. in terms of her almost like redemption arc or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Because it's funny, some people read the play where it's like, oh my god, like why is Nora coming back to her mom? That's why I included that bit about, like, Bernardo asking, like, why do you try so hard? Because some people are like, oh, my parents suck, bye. <laughs> you know? Or, like, they don't, not suck, but, like, they don't accept yeah. me. Yeah. But, like, South Asian family is so big. It means so much. And, you know, for Nora, like, her dad had left, so, like, her mom is so important. And so, like, why does she keep coming back? And, you know, Aisha, mama, she does, she cares a lot and mm-hmm. shows it in intense ways. You know, that's one of the lines of the show. And then how can, like, it's so, honestly, it is really understandable when you're, like, grow, growing up a certain way and not exposed to anything like what it means to be queer or just know that it's bad. Like, okay, yeah, if, if the first time you're encountering that with, like, your husband who is leaving you and then your daughter, like, it makes sense. So having compassion for her and, like, showing her caring, intense caring mom moments. Um, and then by the end, you know, yeah, that was really important to me. So that was, that was a really fun character. To develop, and of course, Kishore uh, Papa was was too. <laughs> um, in in for myself, thinking about like why did he leave, and like what did it mean to him to figure out his sexuality on his own, and how is he going to help Nora with that? And I think even the whole like juxtaposition of him being like a programmer in the day and then a drag queen mm-hmm. at night was like, and that's what that's what people. I, I almost like, mm-hmm. I don't know, for me that was like a very I don't want to say shocking, but. It was a very emotional moment when I was watching it. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, well, the thing is, like, so much of it was, like, this is how queer people exist. Like, it's not always that, like, they're full-time. Yeah. I'm putting my queerness out there. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's, like, something in the day and something at night or something at night is something that, you know what I mean? Like, vice versa. Um, and, you know, especially with, with performance, like, that can be so intertwined with also like mm-hmm. other parts of your life that are necessary to make money and live in New York City. So mm-hmm. um, that's like the show is about how like BIPOC exists and how queer people exist in like multifaceted ways. Mm-hmm. Um, in the struggle and the survival and the joy and the pain. And them. then And yeah, so like watching the play, one of the scenes that really struck both me and Dave Key was the scene with Tina, Nora, Charlie and Mike and then talking about the different experiences while being queer and the different identities that they have that all come under the queer umbrella um so i wanted to play the scene quickly for you and we're hoping you can unpack it for us a little bit and we could kind of dive into it sometimes i don't even know if it's me that wants the surgery or if it's just the part of me that knows life would be easier if i passed i feel you it took a lot of experimenting for me I was lucky that the people around me were pretty chill about it, though, which we are, but I know people at work give you a hard time. Yeah, I mean, not my team or anything, but people higher up. There's always some weird comments, but I didn't major in computer science for nothing. It pays the bills, and it'll pay for all the therapy I need because of the trauma. My mother would be so proud to have a son-in-law like you. A smart, nice computer scientist. I mean, we just have to leave out one part. Are you going to come out to your mom anytime soon? 
how about your brother? You never know with this new generation of kids. Kids from the Midwest, I wouldn't bet on it. So, yeah, that seems important to me because it's like this beautiful image of community. Um, and and it's like both the, the unity um, that and like oneness that like queer community can be in queer BIPOC community, but also the multiplicity and diversity within the experience. So they're all in, in some ways like Nora, Tina, Mike, Charlie are like relating to each other. They're here for each other. They get each other. Um, and at the same time, they're each talking about different things. Mm-hmm. Tina, I feel like is pretty in that place, pretty like comfortable with her gender, sexuality. Um, like she's vibing. Um, meanwhile, Nora is like just for the first time, mm-hmm. it's like coming out and really like being in a queer space. Um, and then Mike is also pretty comfortable with his sexuality. And then Charlie's really struggling with like, how am I presenting my gender? Wow. Mm. What does it mean to get surgery? He says one thing for what what pronouns it is. Yeah, he. He said one thing really interesting, which is like, I'm not sure Ivan wants the surgery, but it's easier to appear. That was something I added in in like later iterations, being more cognizant of, and queer studies actually definitely brought that out. Thinking about like the surgery, I feel like so much, so much, I, I've just learned like, oh, you're trans, like, if you're going like male to female, female to whatever, like, you get a surgery, and it's like, okay, why, like, why do certain like phenotypical features like why are, why do you need to have those to like be a, identify a certain way um and i think a lot of a lot of trans people face that and it's like oh it's expensive and like oh, it takes so much work and it's like bodily trauma like what does yeah. that mean and like yeah again do i want it or is it just going to be easier for people to call me he to like mm-hmm. accept me as a man if i do this how do you think a young Athena would have, like, seeing this play, how do you think she would have reacted to it? She would have freaked out. She would have been like, you have guts. So, like, <laughs> put that on. And, yeah. Um, she would have, yeah, I feel like I would have just been so shocked that I pulled that off and during COVID. What's that? <laughs> well, no, like, say it wasn't your play. You just, like, were watching the play as a kid. What do you oh. think it would have meant to you? Or that would have been so special mm-hmm. to like even see, I don't know if I've ever seen a South Asian queer person in the media you know like as a character I don't know if I have it would have been so special to be like that's a possibility maybe I don't have to like mm-hmm. have this battle with that inside like there's like a future for me there's a future for all of these people uh, I'm so cheesy I'm like very <laughs> self-aware but why do you think media is so important in the first place in, like, telling you who you can and can't be? Like, why do you think we put so much value towards the media? Partially because in, both in India, too, like, the TV, Bollywood, and NPR, like, it's something that pretty much everyone has access to. But I think that, like, representation is power. Because when you are, like, showing an identity, you're like, this person exists, this person can do this. And so whether it's an ads of, like, who's working as construction workers, who's working as doctors mm-hmm. or whatever. It's, like, it is, you're, you're seeing, like, a future for people that might look like you or identify like you. Yeah. And so, you know, first of all, not seeing queer love in general, it's, like, oh, we just don't survive or we, like, don't find love. Cool, cool, cool. And then queer vibe, like, what even? You know, like, a whole other thing. And so it's, it's about, like, existence. And it's about, like, power. Like, representation is power. And, of course, it matters that it's good representation, but it's, like, Simply having someone exist in the media is really powerful too. It means that like your existence is valid, that you are seen by society, that you have mm-hmm. a value in society, and mm-hmm. that you can do something no matter mm-hmm. who you are. Our arts and culture team also chatted with Mona Tavangar, the musical director of the show. She spoke about the ways in which this production created spaces for critical conversations, as well as the importance of seeing diverse representation on stage. It was just a really wonderful group of people and a really strong sense of community. So that was a really important part of like Athena's mission and like my mission once I, you know, got involved in stuff was to kind of have this community and have especially well, I mean, on both sides, have underclassmen who are new to Tufts to have kind of this safe um, experience of like a BIPOC performance space, but also for upperclassmen who have been like me, who has done theater at Tufts without having this kind of experience, like to also have that opportunity. 
And, you know, I think that, you know, informally, we had a lot of like, just shared connections and fun and good times. But then there were also these formal, like affinity groups that we had scheduled in where we kind of discussed like, topics that were really relevant to the show, such as like, you know, immigration, and also, like trans rights. Um, And so that was kind of a more structured space to kind of talk about some of these like critical issues. And it was really kind of inspiring to see the range of experiences that the cast and like crew had had. So kind of my job was to kind of be like, okay, like you're not just singing, you're not just performing this album, like, what's your character doing in this part? Like, what are you know, what's your how's your character feeling in this scene? Um, So that was like a really fun process to kind of like when working with them to be like, you know, it's not just singing for the sake of singing. Like you are, you are singing as your character, um, which is a really kind of fun distinction. Something that really stood out to me about it was that it centered on, you know, a Muslim American woman, a young, you know, I mean, yeah, young Muslim American woman. And she's South Asian and I'm Middle Eastern. But I think within kind of the representation for Muslim Americans. Um, and I mean, again, it's also it's a complex question because it's like, who is Muslim American? Who's Middle Eastern? Who's South Asian? Where are the overlaps? What are the overlaps? Jamie and I were in a class together about, you know, that centered on some Middle Eastern experiences, but not others, you know, so it's like a whole, it's, in some ways, it's complicated, but in other ways, because there's kind of this shared experiences within the US of being so othered and being kind of so um, marginalized in the media, definitely the just seeing in the bio, like, a Muslim American woman, that was really important for me. And that's something that really stood out to me um, about the project. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our first segment featuring Alice Hickman and Julia Steiner was written and produced by Hannah Bregman, Suhasni Mehra, and Alexis Inderley. The segment on anti-Asian hate crimes and resources at the Asian American Center was written and produced by Emma Downs and Reina Matsumoto. The segment on the student-written Jukebox musical was written and produced by Jamie Guerra and Dave Kikalra. The Observer podcast is executive produced by Florence Almeida and Sophia Pratel. Thank you.